result of that, you're, being, you're having the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, and we trust that you are the one who can open our eyes to see you, open our ears to hear you, and I pray that you would do that this morning in Jesus' name, amen. I had in your bulletin that we would look at selections from 7 and 8, and we're actually going to do that, but that's a lot to read, so we're not going to read that whole two chapters, although we're going to refer to some of this stuff. Instead, what we're going to do is look at, we're going to read from chapter 8, verses 1 through 30, um, which is not quite the whole chapter, but it's a good bit of it. It is a long bit of reading, so I, I'm, I'm asking, is that too long to stand up, and, or is it, do we want to sit down and honor? We'll just stay seated while we honor the reading of God's Word. Just it's such, such a long passage this morning. From Mark, the Gospel of Mark, uh, beginning with uh, chapter 8, verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, He called His disciples to Him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks... He broke them and gave them to His disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a small, a few small fish, and having blessed them, He said that they, these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and He sent them away. And immediately He got into the boat with His disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked them, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah. 
and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is God's Word. There is a, an ongoing theme in a lot of the Gospels, in the Gospel of Mark. If, if the Gospels are written to introduce us to the person of Jesus Christ and what He came to do, one thing we see throughout, throughout the Gospels, not only in Mark, but also in some of the others, is this theme that they have trouble seeing who He is. They, try, they, have, they have this trouble. It, 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 it's really encapsulated in one verse in this chapter uh, that we read, if you look at verse 21, he said to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? It's a troubling theme that goes on, and if you read in Mark, you'll find him often describing the disciples as men who have no faith. Matthew describes them often as th- those who have little faith. So, whether it's little faith or no faith, or He's getting onto them for their unbelief, there is this continual description that they're seeing and yet they're not seeing. They're hearing and yet they're not hearing, if that makes sense. It's why there is this continual challenge for us when we hear, if you have ears to hear, let them hear. If you have eyes to see, let them see. For we have trouble understanding, and it is, of course, the theme of the disciples. So, what, what I want to do in this particular passage and these sections of 7 and 8 is is ask the questions, well, what is it that He is revealing that we have a hard time seeing, that His disciples were having a hard time seeing? And I think there's several things. There's, there's of course, who He is, and the second aspect is, is what He came to do, who He came to reach. And the last part would be, and how is He going to open your eyes to see it? Who is He? Who has He come to reach And how does He open your eyes to see those things? That's really the mystery that He's talking about. Do you not yet understand? And what's so fascinating about the way the gospel writers put together uh, these gospels is that uh, they they select certain uh, events, certain healings, certain things that Jesus has said, and they organize them in a way to reveal something about a bigger picture of who Jesus is and what He's coming to do. So, when you read a story like this, we see various connecting aspects about food and bread throughout these different stories, and then we move straight into, from the question, do you not yet understand, into the healing of a blind man. And you think, why did Mark choose to include this particular miracle of the healing of the blind man right here as he asked this question, do you not yet understand? And it would seem to be the plain reason is he's, he's giving them a, a, a representation of what does it look like? How do you go from here to there? Where are they in their own journey of understanding who Jesus is and what He has come to do, who He has come to reach? So there's this blind man who was brought before Jesus, wants to touch Him, and Jesus takes him out of the village and touches him, and He says, he says to him, what does it say? He spit on his eyes, laid his hands on him, and he asked him, do you see anything? And he says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. 
It's one of the few places or the, perhaps the only place in a miracle of Jesus that He does a miracle and it's only halfway done. It's only half cooked, as it were. And you think, well, why? Why is Jesus doing this in a way that is showing that it's not quite done? If not, to somehow connect it to where His disciples are, where do you see me? Where do people see me? I mean, that's the next question, by the way. In Mark's gospel, he says, who do people say that I am? Well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah. Others say that you're one of the prophets. In other words, I look like a man walking, but I, or I look, I'm a man, but I look like a tree walking. They can only see part. They know something about who God is, clearly, or who Jesus is. Clearly, He's a man been sent from God, but that's all we can figure out. We don't really know who He is. And so when Jesus asks Peter the very following question, but who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ. Well, now we've come to the stage where the man's been touched again. And He says, now what do you see? And He sees people and He sees everything clearly. So there is this, this stage of opening your eyes. Well, I see partly, but I don't see fully. And it's exactly where the disciples were, it's exactly where the people of Israel were when they were looking at this person of Jesus, scratching their heads, trying to figure out and understand exactly who He is. Now, we can, we've, we've talked already about some of the reasons why they had trouble seeing who He is. They had, they had some expectations that Jesus perhaps wasn't meeting exactly, that continued to confound them. I mean, even John the Baptist, you recall, at one point in his own ministry, uh, when Jesus comes on the scene... God reveals to him that this is the Messiah, this is the Christ, and so John introduces him as the Christ. Behold the Lamb of God. And then later on, Jesus or John the Baptist is curious, well, wait a minute, are you the one we, that was to be sent or should we be looking for someone else? Because even John the Baptist is confused. I'm not sure I see anything but someone who looks like trees walking. There is blinders in their eyes. There are things stuffed in their ears. They're like corn and potatoes. But the answer, of course, Peter tells us, you are the Christ. But even Peter, while he gives that answer, doesn't quite know exactly what that means. And we know that because he goes on to say, don't tell anyone about him. Because while you know I'm the Christ, you don't really know what that means to be the Christ. So let's walk through this a little bit and see if that's, if that's the, the, the who He's revealing Himself to be, exactly who has He come to reveal Himself to? Who has He come to reach? And this is where these two chapters really take us into somewhat of a new territory, and they begin to challenge some of the, the preconceived ideas of what they thought about the Messiah. As chapter 7 uh, uh, and chapter 8 have uh, several things in, in, in common. With one, we see some, some interesting uh, healings going on. So I want to talk about that as we talk about who does Jesus come to reach. And in, in chapter 7 and 8, His ministry has taken a turn from where He was. Geographically, He's largely been ministering around the Sea of Galilee in the Jewish area, the Jewish portion of the Sea of Galilee, that, that part of Galilee that we would look at to be on the, the western side of the Sea of Galilee to the northern side. That was a Jewish side. But, and while he was there, you'll recall, he, he, was, 
He was teaching the people. They were all hearing about him. They were pressing on him on every side. At one point, he realizes things are so dangerous, he gets in the boat to teach. And then he takes his disciples to the other side of the lake to give them some some recovery time, some rest from the crowds. But the crowds figure out where they're going and they run ahead of them. And so when they get out of the boat, there are the crowds. And rather than send them away, Jesus has compassion on them, and that's when He feeds the 5,000 men plus perhaps women and children as well with the five loaves and the two fish with the disciples helping. Here we see now He's taken another turn. If, it wasn't, if we weren't successful in going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to get some rest, I'm going to take my disciples far away. And that's what He's done. We find Him describing where that is in, back in chapter 7, which I didn't read, But if you look back at chapter 7, verse 24, we find out where he is. From there he rose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So that's where he is. Tyre and Sidon, if you're not familiar with where that is geographically, that is uh, north and west of the Sea of Galilee along the Mediterranean coast. It's quite a bit away, and it's it's, it's in a predominantly Gentile area. So it's as if the crowds in the Jewish regions have been so great, pressing in on Jesus, now He's taking His disciples to a place perhaps that He can, he can escape the crowds. In fact, He goes into this house to be with them, and He's trying to do it secretly. He's trying to hide His whereabouts, perhaps to get that rest that He needs. But while He's there, uh, He can't be hidden, the text says, and immediately He encounters this woman. So if we keep reading... A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So he can't get away. Here's a woman coming to him with a great need, and she's described as a Gentile woman. Now it's not the first time Jesus has encountered a Gentile. I mean, Alan was telling us about the demoniac that he encountered, by the way, on the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee. He encountered the demoniac who was of the Gentile regions, and he healed them. He healed him. Uh, And now here he is faced again with a a Gentile, and the question is, well, what is he going to do? Now, Mark doesn't give us any more details in terms of what the disciples say, but if you look at Matthew's version, the disciples encourage Jesus, send this woman away. And while we might think, well, that's a little bit rude, it expresses what they understood and thought about the mission of the Messiah. The mission of the Messiah wasn't for the Gentiles. The mission of the Messiah was for God's people. That was the great expectation. And Jesus, it seems to be confirming that with His answer, because it gets a little bit strange as we keep reading. In verse um, 27, He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, our modern sensibility ears hear that, and we think, man, that is just rude. (laughs) But we have to understand the context of what's going on here. They're in a Gentile region. His disciples have already said, send her away, because we know that's not who you've come. That's not who your mission is to. You've come to set your people free from the Gentiles. They're the problem. And Jesus, in essence, seems to be saying the same thing when He says, let the children be fed first. If you look at Matthew's version, He says, He adds something that helps us understand. It says, for I have come to the lost sheep 
of Israel. So even he is affirming that his ministry, his mission is to the Jewish people. And yet she persists. She says something creative to him, clever. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he says to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So he does relent. and He does heal her. And again, he, he's done this before with a demoniac. And, and while that's, you know, those are not completely unexpected out of the sorts with them understanding the mission being only to the lost sheep of Israel, there were moments in the Old Testament also when Gentiles came and received healing. Perhaps the most notable one was Naaman, when Naaman was sent uh, by his king uh, because he had leprosy from a faraway country, uh, Elijah heals him, and he goes his way. So, you know, it happened. There are these one-off moments where God extends mercy to those outside the people of Israel, and it very well could be that when the disciples noticed that Jesus was healing the demoniac or healing this Syrophoenician Gentile woman, that, all right, well, these are these are these one-off moments that are a little bit out of the norm, but not to be completely unexpected with what God is doing in His mission, what, who Jesus has come to save. But what's, uh, what is telling is that we move to chapter 8, and we see this interesting event happen with the feeding of the 4,000, with the miraculous supply of bread and fish. And what's notable is that this isn't the first time this has happened. We just read about it in chapter 6. Last week we were looking at it. For us it was really close. It may not have been quite that close for the disciples. And you think to yourself, in the economy of space that these gospel writers are given to write the account of Jesus, why would they include two almost identical miracles almost side by side in the gospels? I mean, isn't this redundant? So we have to ask, well, why has Mark? included this miracle here. And to try to get to the answer to that, we can look at some of the things that are similar and some of the things that are different between these two sets of miracles. Now, what's similar? Well, here's a group, a massive group of people who are in a desolate place who need food. And that's similar, right? Jesus says uh, He has compassion on the crowds. That's similar. Jesus tells His disciples, well, you feed them. That's similar. And it's similar in the both cases. The disciples said, we can't feed them. We don't have the means to feed them. In both cases, we see that. Now, some, some of the scholars after the Enlightenment period believed this was, uh, this was demonstrated to be the same account. Mark just kind of, you know, accidentally got it here. He's retelling the same account because he didn't quite understand or he got confused. But Jesus is very clear in His statements that this is not the same account. This is a separate account. In fact, when He's talking to the disciples later, He says, do you not remember when we fed the 5,000? How many baskets did you have left? Twelve. Do you not remember when we fed the 4,000? How many baskets do we have left? Seven. So, the, clearly, there are two distinct events. Now, some of those similarities we can expect, they're not unusual, but there's one of those similarities that seems really odd, and it's the fact that in both cases, the disciples seem confused when He says, you give them something to eat. We can understand that about the first one because it's never happened before. But in the second one, you would think, wait a minute, why would they be confused when He says, give them something to eat when He just did this in the previous 
couple of chapters. Did they really forget? Or is there some other reason why they were having trouble seeing that? And, and where they are geographically is a huge clue to us understanding. Because when they have, the text tells us where, the, where they have gone. They are in a region. They're back around the Sea of Galilee, but they're no longer on the west or the northern side. Now they're on the southern, the southeastern side. And if you recall, this is the same region where the demoniac was from. It's the region they call the Decapolis. And the Decapolis is called that because it's the, it's the, it's the area of ten cities that were Gentile cities. So, what's different between the first time and the second time is the first one was, was supplying food to the lost sheep of Israel. The second one is a crowd of Gentiles. So, if they're wondering, I could understand him doing a one-off ministry with the demoniac, you know, okay, he was a Gentile, that happened. Syrophoenician woman, you know, these are kind of exceptions to the rule. But now Jesus is doing something vastly different and vastly intentional. He's feeding a mass of people who are not from the lost sheep of Israel. He's actually feeding Gentiles with His miracle. Now, this shouldn't have surprised the disciples so much. If they, if they were really reading their Old Testament, they would note that all along that it was the grand plan of God. If you go back all the way to the time of Abraham, who they would point to as their forefather, the beginning of the Jewish people, and look at the promise that God gave him. He says, I want you to get up and leave your father and mother, go to a land that I will show you, that I will give to you. I will make your your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Anyone who blesses you will be blessed. Anyone who curses you will be cursed. And through you, all the nations, all the Gentiles of the earth will be blessed. So we have that in the very first promise that separates Abraham and his people, that all along God has in mind that the ultimate goal of setting those people apart is that not just that they would be God's people, but they would bring the means of blessing to all the world when He brings in all nations. That's not the only time. If you can go look at the prophets as well. Some of the major prophets, Isaiah in particular, talks about this. You know, Isaiah pronounces judgment upon Israel for their failure to worship Him and keep the, the Mosaic law, but he also pronounces judgment upon Egypt, judgment upon the Babylonians, judgment upon Moab and the other nations that were surrounding Israel. But he also talks about the time when God will bring back Israel. Yes, He's going to bring judgment, but He's going to restore them. In fact, He talks about a future time when they will be walking along the road to, to worship God next to Egypt and Babylon. So there, is the, there are these prophecies that a time in the future, a future that is designated when God sends the promised Messiah, when these things that have not come yet will finally begin to happen. Daniel, another one of the, the major prophets who's, who... Uh, lived during the time of the exile in Babylon and then later Persia, has a dream. And in that dream, he sees a statue that represents the various empires that were going to exist within his lifetime or soon afterward. Uh, the empire of the Babylonians, followed by the Persians, followed by the Greeks, and followed by the Romans. And then the, the last part is this rock that's not cut by human hands that comes and lands on the feet of the statue, destroying it, growing to become a mountain that fills the whole earth. That's his vision. 
a picture of this little rock that starts as the kingdom of God and grows into something that fills the whole earth. So there is this ultimate goal of the work of Messiah. When He comes, He is going to bring not only the lost sheep of Israel in, but eventually to all the nations. Now, His earthly ministry was isolated to the Jewish people. But he's doing these things, I think, to prepare his disciples because it's going to be through them that he launches this ministry to the nations. So he's preparing them. I mean, how, how do we know? Well, what does he do after, his, after he's raised from the dead and he meets with his disciples? The very final command he gives them is to go and make disciples of all nations. In the book of Acts, he says it, in a, you know, Luke records it in a little bit different way. He says, I, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And you've got to realize this was a radical shift from what the disciples expected. They expected God to save His people. The Gentiles was a new thing. We take it for granted because we're Gentiles and we're the beneficiaries of that. But for them, this was, this was a radical idea. This was a blinder that had to be taken out of their eye. It's what kept them from seeing. It's what kept them from hearing. And even as you trace the book of Acts, which follows, by the way, that, that, that great commission, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. That's actually the outline of the book because first we see them ministering in Jerusalem and Judea, and then we see them reaching out and ministering in Samaria, and then we see them reaching out to all the nations. That's how the book flows. And what's interesting in the book of Acts, and I remember who first pointed this out to me, actually was Alan. It was you pointed this out to me way back when I first got here. In, in Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, uh, the Holy Spirit falls upon the Jewish people because the Lord Himself has now made His way and is sitting at the right hand of God. He sent the Holy Spirit down to cleanse the hearts of His people, to convict the hearts of His people. It's a sign that this is happening that the kingdom is real, the kingdom is coming. And a little bit later on in Acts chapter 8, Philip is gone and he's in, he's in the land of the Samaritans and he's preaching this gospel and they put their faith in him and they're baptized. And Peter, lays, Peter later comes to see what's happening in Samaria. And when he gets there, they talk about, have you received the Holy Spirit? He says, no. And so the Holy Spirit falls upon now the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans were kind of an interesting group. The Samaritans were a group of people that had Jewish connections but couldn't trace their genealogy back to their Jewish roots. These were people who had returned during the exile but lost count of who they were, mixed in with the people of the land. So, in some ways, they were kind of like half-Jewish, half-Jewish, half-Gentile. They were like the halfway house. So, it's not completely unfeasible that the disciples would see, okay, I can understand the Holy Spirit falling on the Jewish people. I can, I can even understand them kind of falling on the Samaritans over the, even though we've hated them for years because they have some connection to the Jews. But then two chapters later in Acts chapter 10, Peter has this interesting dream with this tablecloth that God brings down full of all these unclean animals, and he hears a voice saying, Peter, get up and kill and eat. And Peter looks at these unclean animals. He says, never, Lord would never eat anything unclean. And the voice says, do not call unclean what I have made clean. And this happens three times. And Peter's dumbfounded as to what the, what the dream means. And as he's pondering what it means, a knock on the door comes from someone sent from a Roman centurion, a Gentile, 
who also had a dream, and in his dream, he was supposed to send for a man named Peter who would find where he found him. And they tell Peter this, and Peter says, well, you know, if you'd come yesterday, I wouldn't have gone with you because you're Gentiles. But God gave me this dream to not to call unclean what I have made clean, so therefore I'll go. And he goes to their house, he tells them the gospel, and while he's watching, he is astounded because the Holy Spirit falls upon them too. This was always Jesus' plan. And here we see it, even in the Gospels, in preparing His disciples to understand this. And he's, it's as like He's so gently and patiently taking them by the hand, allowing them to see it. They're going in stages, little bitty stages. First they see, but it's like trees walking. It won't be until Acts chapter 10 that they finally get it fully. So how do you go from not seeing to seeing? Well, I want to take you back to that miracle of the blind man. What what happened with the blind man? Jesus takes him by the hand and he touches him. He said, what do you see? I see people, but they look like trees walking. So he touches him again. Now he says, what do you see? And he saw everything clearly. What does it take to go from unseeing to seeing? It's very, very simple. It takes an encounter with Jesus. Encounter with Jesus. We can see the miracles. We can hear the message. But until you have an an encounter with Christ, you won't see it. This is why we see things like the parable of the sower. The man goes out to sow the seed. He sows it everywhere. But not all of the seed takes root because not all of those people who have heard the gospel have encounters with Jesus. Our job as the farmer is to go sow the seed everywhere of all nations. But it's the Holy Spirit's job sent from Christ to encounter the heart and remove the blinders that that seed that's been planted can grow in the heart. So my challenge to you this morning is simply this, do you have eyes to see who Jesus is? He is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, whose goal is to bring all those that belong to God into His family. And He does that by opening our eyes that were once blind, opening our ears that were once deaf to see that He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the only way to the Father. And when we see that, we become followers of Jesus. When we see that, we become those who are commissioned and sent out to be the spreaders and the sowers of the truth, the sowers of the Word. So where are you? Do you have eyes to see? Do you have ears to hear? who Jesus is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the gospel, for the miracles that you have shown to us, for the teaching that you have given to us, that become instrumental in the Holy Spirit's hand to open our eyes to see Jesus, 
to open our ears to hear Him speak, that we might be moved as His disciples to go into the world and to share this good news with those you've brought into our spheres of influence. Lord, would you continue to encourage us in this effort, continue to open our eyes to see you even greater, open our ears to love to hear your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.